0: Welcome back to another episode of Over My Dead Pod. I'm Kylie Colwell. And I'm Holly Spear. And sorry for a new episode last week. We'll get into why a little bit later. But Holly is safe and she's here to listen to this week's story, which is absolutely bonkers and full of plot twists. We're just going to go back in time to 1972 in Merced, California, a town a little north of Fresno. said Stephen Gregory Steiner was a happy seven-year-old boy living with his older brother and three younger sisters. Parents Delbert and Kay ran a seemingly normal home, but feelings were never discussed. They have confessed to often being cold and not too personal. So the reason behind them being cold, or at least what they have said is the reason, was because Kay was molested by her father at a young age. So somehow this turned into not allowing a too personable relationship between parents and their children. There are also some unconfirmed rumors and allegations that despite this, Delbert carried on this cycle of molestation, but I couldn't find anything too specific. So I don't want to get too much into it. And the story isn't about Delbert. On December 4th, 1972, Stephen was walking home from school when he was approached by a man named Irvin Edward Murphy. Irvin was passing out gospel tracts to boys as they walked home, saying he was a church representative seeking out donations. Stephen had stopped to talk to Irvin for a moment who asked him if his mom would be willing to donate a few unused items around the house or some money to the church. Stephen said she probably would and agreed to be driven the two blocks home by Irvin to talk to his mother about it. But at that moment, a white Buick pulled up, driven by a man named Kenneth Parnell, and Stephen willingly climbed into the back seat. Mm. You may have guessed it, but they did not drive Stephen home. You may have also guessed that Irvin was not a church representative. In fact, he worked at a resort right outside of Yosemite National Park with Kenneth Parnell, the driver of the car. Irvin was described as naive and simple-minded, probably easy to manipulate. And this is exactly what Kenneth had done. Kenneth told Irvin that he was an aspiring minister and wanted to to start a religious family. He convinced Irvin to help him abduct a young boy to raise as his own son. Kenneth claimed that the only way to change the world and make it holier was to start with a holy family. Hmm, okay. There were probably multiple attempts prior to the kidnapping of Stephen, just based off of what Kenneth goes on to do later. But once he got Stephen in his car, he drove him to his cabin in Kathy's Valley, which was about 30 minutes east. In a weird coincidence, Kenneth's cabin was only a few hundred feet away from Stephen's grandpa's house. Which, I'm not sure how all of this went unnoticed by the grandpa, because Stephen was in that cabin with Kenneth for seven years. Wow. But... On the very first night kenneth began sexually assaulting stephen and continued to do so the entire time oh that's terrible
1: seven years
0: seven years of this
1: and did he like see other people or was he just kind of like kept
0: basically had complete freedom okay But in order to keep control of Stephen, Kenneth told him that he had been granted legal custody of him because his parents couldn't afford that many kids and they elected to give him up.
1: Which, like, I guess if you're seven, you're just probably going to believe.
0: Right. And that's what Stephen did. So he never tried to, like, run away or seek help. He just thought this was his life now.
1: Yeah. Oh, that's so terrible.
0: Kenneth also renamed Stephen to Dennis Gregory Parnell and told anyone they encountered that Stephen was his son. He even enrolled Stephen into different schools under this fake name and moved around pretty frequently to avoid suspicion. Wow. Stephen was also given whatever he wanted. Kenneth figured that if Stephen could do whatever he pleased, he would never want to leave, no matter what kind of abuse was occurring. So he started letting Stephen drink and smoke at only eight years old. Dang. He had come and go as he pleased. He had friends he would hang out with, no curfew, basically did whatever he wanted. And Kenneth even got him a dog, a Manchester Terrier named Queenie. So for a while, it was just Kenneth, Stephen, and the dog. However, when Stephen turned nine, Kenneth actually found himself a little girlfriend. The girlfriend was a woman named Barbara Matthews, and she ended up moving in with Kenneth for about 18 months. And it turns out Barbara was also a piece of shit and began to take part in the abuse of Stephen. What? Yes. And then even after they broke up and she moved out, she never told anyone about it.
1: Wow. Well, I guess one piece of shit found another piece of shit that's not that surprising, I
0: guess. Gosh, how do you even find? I don't even want to know. Kenneth also had Barbara roped into his plans to kidnap another boy because Stephen was about to start going through puberty. So Kenneth and Barbara went around and tried, I don't know how many times, to find a replacement. They used the ruse of pretending to be members of a church. They told boys they were looking for a friend for their shy son. They even tried just scooping a boy up from the sidewalk. But luckily, all these attempts were unsuccessful.
1: So was he getting too old for them or was he just...
0: Yeah, Kenneth liked him really young. So at some point, Kenneth dumped Barbara and decided that the best partner in crime for finding a young boy would be another young boy, Stephen. Hmm. Kenneth would drive around with Stephen, going to parks, malls, or wherever kids were hanging out. Stephen's role was to sort of befriend another boy and convince him to come home to play. Luckily, again, none of these attempts were successful because Stephen actually botched every single one of them on purpose. He didn't want another kid to go through what he had gone through. Kenneth started to get frustrated with this and decided to find yet another accomplice. You may have noticed, but Kenneth does not like to do any of the work himself. And so he convinced one of Stephen's friends, Randall Poorman, to help him in exchange for drugs and money, which I guess was enough for Randall. On Valentine's Day, 1980, Randall found a victim. This victim was a five-year-old, Timmy White, who was playing outside of his house. Randall tried to convince Timmy to get in the car, but Timmy started to run inside instead. Randall shoved him up against the fence and drug him into the car. And the same process happened over again. He began his grooming routine. He told Timmy his new name was Tommy and that he was Kenneth's son and Stephen's brother. Kenneth even dyed Timmy's blonde hair to dark brown. Seeing Timmy being brought into the same situation that Stephen had been in, kind of awoke Stephen to the abuse that had been going on. Timmy was crying nonstop during this time, of course, and Stephen realized that he didn't want to see this happen to him. So after 16 days, Stephen decided it was time to escape Kenneth and bring Timmy with him. On March 1st, 1980, Kenneth was at work as a nighttime security guard when now 14-year-old Stephen took Timmy with him and began to hitchhike to bring Timmy home to his parents. The two traveled around all night for, but were not able to find Timmy's house. On the brink of exhaustion, Stephen decided to go to a police station instead. He walked in and told officers their real names explained they had escaped from this man's house. In a written statement, Stephen had written, quote, I know my first name is Stephen. So this line went on to be used in many documentaries, movies, and books. And by the next morning, Kenneth Parnell was arrested for the kidnapping of Stephen Stainer and Timmy White. At the same time, Stephen and Timmy were finally reunited with their families.
1: So Stephen had been gone for seven years, and how long had Timmy been gone?
0: 16 days.
1: Okay. He probably saw a lot of himself and Timmy when... He finally got another victim.
0: He realized, like, oh shit.
1: Yeah. of they this is what they did to me. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's terrible.
0: When Steven and Timmy returned home, there was a giant media frenzy. There's a good documentary on this called Captive Audience. It's on Hulu, and it has like their actual family members in it talking about all this madness. What was weird to me that it showed is that like news crews following steven around 24 7 even like in the school like in the classrooms wow. around school all day interviewing him in the hallways weird things like that
1: yeah and that's got to be i don't know somewhat feel a little bit intrusive when you've gone through so much especially like stuff that's really hard would be hard for anybody to talk about especially like a young person to have to talk about it or bring it up like constantly would be really hard
0: Yeah, he just wanted to have a normal life. And kids in school were also all over him. And he was known as like the hero of the town for saving Timmy. Yeah. And the town even put up a statue of Stephen holding Timmy's hand Mm -hmm. to commemorate the act. Of course, all this attention was a struggle for Stephen, who just wanted to move on and be a regular kid. Yeah. Along with all this attention in public, Stephen struggled with adjusting to being at home. With Kenneth, Stephen was allowed to do whatever he wanted, like drink and smoke weed. Now he was back home with rules. He stated in interviews that it was weird because his parents still treated him as a seven-year-old boy that had gone missing. Stephen's siblings also had a hard time when he returned. In the documentary, they talked about being jealous of all the attention Stephen was getting and they felt neglected by their parents at the time. The one sibling who took it the hardest was Stephen's older brother, Carrie, who ended up being diagnosed with trichotillomania. Due to the stress, do you know what that is? No, it's like it's a mental disorder. It's usually caused by stress, but it like causes you to like impulsively like pull your hair out. Interesting. One by one, you know. One by one, one by one, things are not going great at the Steiner's house. But believe it or not, things get way worse. At the conclusion of the trials, Irvin, who was the guy who helped to kidnap Stephen, was sentenced to five years as an accomplice. Stephen later said he felt like Irvin was as much of a victim as he was due to Kenneth's manipulation. Randall, the friend who helped to kidnap Timmy, was sent to a juvenile work camp for an undisclosed amount of time, but likely until he turned 18. I don't know, do they still have work camps? Are those legal? I do. I never hear about work camps. Seems a little late. Nazi ish to me. Yeah. So Barbara Mathias, who they did track down and who did testify in all the trials, was never arrested or charged with any crime.
1: The girlfriend, the wife, the. Yeah. What? Nothing. Why?
0: Get into it. Kenneth, you know, the main perpetrator ended up being convicted for the kidnappings, but he was only sentenced to seven years in prison. And he was paroled after only five. Wow. And you may be wondering how in the hell did he get so little time for all this? And Mm -hmm. the reason why he got such little time and why Barbara was never arrested was because no one knew what actually happened with Stephen and Timmy. Stephen never told anyone about the sexual abuse. Mm. So the story that everyone believed was that Kenneth was just a weird dude who wanted a family but didn't uh, have one because he didn't have a wife. Dang,
1: that's rough. Because like I could see where Stephen wouldn't want to share that. And but that's just, oh, then he could end up hurting someone else, you know?
0: Yeah. At the time of his conviction, police didn't realize that Kenneth had a prior conviction. So it's pre-internet databases. Mm. But in 1951, Kenneth bought a sheriff's badge at an Army-Navy surplus store, used it to lure a young boy that he went on to rape. For this, Kenneth was sentenced to only four years in prison.
1: And this was prior to or after?
0: Prior. This was 1951. Okay. For this one, he actually did escape from prison, was recaptured, and then did not serve any extra time for this. Wow. Wow. In a later interview, Kenneth said he did this because his wife was pregnant at the time and he had to find another outlet.
1: What a... mm.
0: So when police working on Stephen and Timmy's case found this out, they began to dig a little further. Police found some photos of, you know what, in Kenneth's cabin.
1: I have no words. I'm just so mad.
0: After finding these, they brought in Stephen for an interview. It took some pressure, but Stephen finally told them what had happened for the first time ever. Stephen had told literally no one, not even his siblings, and especially not his parents. So after this revelation, Kenneth was charged with lewd and lascivious contact with a child. I don't understand all these like weird terms. Just
1: yeah, call it what it is. Right. Yeah. Let's just like dance around what you know is going on. Okay. I mean, I yeah. guess maybe they can't prove, but uh okay, whatever.
0: Stephen originally didn't want to testify in the trial, but he was basically forced to. And it took him a bit on the stand to open up, but he eventually did. Mm. This resulted in Kenneth being convicted and sentenced to zero more years (laughs) in prison. Why? Turns out California's sentencing laws were pretty fucked up at the time. They had this law where if someone was sentenced to like the maximum time for one crime, Any like compound crimes couldn't add to the prison term. And so he was sentenced to the maximum for kidnapping, which was only eight years. So anything on top of that couldn't add to it.
1: That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard.
0: Yeah. So he ended up serving five years, of course, for kidnap and abuse of these two young boys.
1: So now he's back out, huh? For a little bit.
0: Anyways, opening up about the abuse that had occurred didn't help Stephen in the slightest. Of course, it didn't help keep Kenneth put away for any longer. People in the 80s were not that nice to Stephen about it. Aww. Of course. Stephen wasn't able to seek therapy or any sort of counseling because his father, Delbert, didn't believe in such things. On top of dealing with all of this internally, the media frenzy around Stephen got even worse. They began to berate him for specific and gross details about what had happened any second they could find Stephen. Kids at school also turned on him. Before this revelation, he was a hero. Now kids began to bully him and call him the Mm F-slur.
1: That's so sad.
0: So Stephen, like anyone else would, really struggled with all this. He began drinking heavily and smoking more often. And his life went on a bit of a spiral until 1985 when he met his wife, Jody while working at a butcher shop.
1: Oh, good for him.
0: He went on to have two kids, Ashley and Stephen Jr., and lived a very happy life. Stephen started opening up more, and he started working with child abduction groups. He spoke with kids about personal safety and just tried to help out however he could. When he wasn't working for the protection of kids, Stephen worked at a pizza shop in his hometown. And I'm sad to report, On the night of September 16th, 1989, Stephen was driving home from work at the pizza shop on his motorcycle when a car ran through a stop sign and struck him, killing him instantly.
1: What a hard life.
0: Yeah, Stephen was only 24.
1: Dang, that's so sad. What a just, that sucks.
0: Over 500 people attended Stephen's funeral. And what's really sad is that little Timmy, was now 14 was one of the pallbearers and Timmy went on to become a Los Angeles County Sheriff's deputy but Timmy also passed away suddenly at the age of 35 from a pulmonary embolism
1: what this is crazy i so sad so sad these little kids are not even getting to live their life now that they're free no
0: so I do have some good news A little bit. So after Kenneth Parnell was released from prison, he was in what I think was, I guess, hospice care. I couldn't find out for sure, but he did have a caregiver. And in 2003, Kenneth tried to convince his caregiver's sister, Diane Stevens, into helping him buy a four year old boy with a quote clean rectum for $500.
1: I'm sorry. He's trying to convince his caregiver to help him do this? Yes. Okay, please tell me the caregiver does not give in to this.
0: No. And the caregiver, Diane, knew knew about his past. So she called the police right away. Thank God. Okay. We have a good person here. But police decided they needed a bit more to catch Kenneth, so they crafted up a sting operation. Police gave Diane a fake fake birth certificate of a fake boy to give to Kenneth as proof of the boy's age and legitimacy. And Kenneth paid Diane $100 for the birth certificate and caught on a wire, told Diane he would pay her the other $400 when the boy was delivered. Finally, in 2004, Kenneth was convicted of attempting to purchase a child and attempted child molestation. His defense team argued that there was no attempt because the boy didn't exist.
1: Okay, but, just
0: die, Kenneth. This is stupid. I hate him. So much. luckily, this didn't hold up, and Kenneth was sentenced to 25 years to life under California's three-strike law. However, like, don't
1: charge him. He tried to buy a kid, but the kid wasn't real, so it's okay.
0: Like it's made up. Yeah. After less than four years in prison, Kenneth died of natural causes. Of his entire life, and for all the crimes he committed, he had only spent. 13 years in prison in total.
1: Slow and painful death, please. I hope it was
0: painful. And I know we're all frustrated and everyone's deceased, but there's more. Who? Who's the left? There's people left. So we're going to travel a bit back in time and back to Yosemite National Park where Irvin and Kenneth met while working. On March 18, 1999, a charred car was found off the edge of a cliff outside of the park. In the trunk, investigators found two bodies which were burnt beyond recognition. Later, dental records confirmed that the bodies were those of 42-year-old Carol Sund and 16-year-old Salvina Palaiso. They had been reported missing a month prior after Carol, her daughter Juliana, and Salvina failed to return home from a trip to the park. Silvina was Juliana's friend and an exchange student from Argentina. The trio decided to show Silvina the famous park and have a little girl's getaway. After they failed to return home where were reported missing, police began to question workers at the motel they were staying in, the Cedar Lodge Motel. One of these workers was a handyman named Carrie Stainer, the older brother of Stephen. Carrie wasn't a suspect though because he didn't have a criminal record, and to police, he seemed calm during the interview. What police didn't know is that two years prior, Carrie had been arrested for possession of marijuana and methamphetamines because the charges were later dropped. What they also didn't know, which no one knew, was that from the age of seven, Carrie began to have urges to abduct and murder women.
1: Wow, okay. What are the odds? Oh my gosh.
0: Carrie also had mental health struggles, attempting suicide a few times, and ended up in a mental institution one time. But of course, no one knew all of this. So police began investigating the murders of Carol and Sylvina, and also the disappearance of Juliana, who still has not been found. Investigators determined that Carol had been strangled and shot. Sylvina had been raped and shot. A week after their bodies were discovered, police got a letter with a hand-drawn map. The map showed where Juliana's body could be found. It also had something written on it. It said, quote, we had fun with this one, end quote. Juliana's body was found where the map said it would be, almost an hour away from where the car was. Juliana had also been raped and her throat was slit. Police began investigating the triple murder further, but didn't get far when another body turned up. On July 22, 1999, a decapitated body of a young woman was found near a cabin in the park. The body was identified as 26-year-old Joey Ruth Armstrong, an employee of the Yosemite Institute. Witnesses quickly came forward and were reported that the day prior a blue 1972 International Scout truck was parked outside of Joey's cabin. The truck was quickly traced back to its owner, Carrie Stainer. Police questioned him again, searched the truck, but once again, Carey was calm and there was no evidence. Carey explained that he was a handyman and had done some repairs in the cabin and there wasn't anything nefarious. So he was let go. But because the park is on federal land, the FBI was leading the investigation and decided they weren't done speaking to Carrie. He had to know something. He was tracked down a few days later at a nudist camp. I don't know, I've picture like california in like the 90s and before and just feel like it's just full of nudist camps
1: yeah maybe that's pretty common there
0: this won't catch me there (laughs) so they track down carrie and they bring him to sacramento for some further questioning surprisingly carrie confessed to everything to the murder of joey and to the murders of carol sylvina and juliana Carrie explained that on the evening of February 15, 1999, he went to the cabin rented by Carol and told them he had to fix a water leak. He then proceeded to strangle Carol to death and sexually assault Sylvina and Juliana. Carrie then shot Sylvina and put her and Carol's body in their rental car. Juliana, who was still alive at this point, was put in the back of the car. He drove Juliana to a secluded area and slashed her neck. On the way back to the lodge, Carrie dumped the car from the cliff and set it on fire before walking back to work. I couldn't find, like, the details of what went down with the murder of Joey, but I'm assuming he probably just used, like, the same ruse. Like, he's a handyman, he has to come in to fix something. Yeah. Anyways, the FBI was nonetheless shocked by this confession. They just thought Carrie was an innocent handyman who might have seen something that night, maybe a witness not that he was the killer or that he would confess immediately. Carey also made it pretty easy during the trial, or at least the first one. Carey was first tried for the murder of Joey Armstrong in federal court, and in order to avoid the death penalty, he pled guilty to the first-degree premeditated murder, felony first-degree murder, kidnapping resulting in death, and attempted aggravated sexual abuse resulting in death. But because there was no trial and justice sentencing, we aren't too sure exactly what happened that night. But during the sentencing, Carrie actually broke down and started crying. He also did apologize and said, quote, I wish I could take it back, but I can't. I wish I could tell you why I did such a thing, but I don't even know myself. I'm so sorry. I wish there was a reason, but there isn't. It's senseless, end quote. So, Joey's mother was present for the sentencing and also started crying after this apology. She later told reporters that she believed Carrie's apology was genuine. After his apology, Carrie was sentenced to life in prison without parole. Next came the state trial for the triple murder of Carol, Salvina, and Juliana. Carrie changed his tune for this trial and decided to plead not guilty by reason of insanity, which, of course, did not work.
1: Seems not that sorry, I guess.
0: So a forensic psychologist met with Kerry and ended up diagnosing him with obsessive compulsive disorder, mild autism, and paraphilia, which I had to look up what that was. But the simplest definition is a condition characterized by abnormal sexual desires. And there's a pretty big rabbit hole. Apparently there's like 550 different types of paraphilia. Rape is one, pedophilia is one, people on those like TLC shows that like have sex with their cars and, like, roller coasters.
1: The the roller coaster one.
0: Oh, my gosh. That's that's a good one.
1: Yep, that is a good one.
0: I think my favorite is the the girl who's married to the Eiffel Tower.
1: Yeah, yep.
0: Yep. Only has one love, and it's her. Anyways, Carrie was found to be sane at the time of the crime and confident enough to stand trial. And on August 27, 2002, he was ultimately convicted of three counts of first-degree murder and one count of kidnapping, and he was sentenced to death. Something he did not want. But since then, he has been incarcerated on death row at the famous San Quentin State Prison. It is unlikely Carrie will ever be executed, since, as we have discussed in several other episodes, California has not carried out any executions since 2006, and is not likely to overturn that decision. But there's even more.
1: What? Is there another sibling?
0: No. <laughs> Since Kerry has not been executed, there are a few more cases he could be potentially tried for if he is connected. The California State Police and FBI have stated there are a few cases which may be connected to Carry and they are actively investigating them. The first case is that of Patricia Marie Hicks Dahlstrom, which is, I think, pretty interesting. So at the time of her disappearance in 1981, Patricia was 28. She had recently moved to Merced, California, a.k.a. Carrie's hometown, to join the Sananda Apostolic. How do you say that? I don't know. No. Nope, okay. Know.
1: Wait, should okay. I? Wait, here. Oh, I can do the little, like, thing where you can do, like.
0: Apostolic.
1: Apostolic?
0: Oh, that's not what I
1: thought. That's what, that's what my computer said when I put speech thing. She joined this church. <laughs> okay, that we can't say. That because we, can't we don't say. know how to pronounce it,
0: and our memory is not good. And this church is led by a man named Donald Gibson, but this in fact was not a church, but our favorite, a cult. And of course, the leader Donald Gibson ended up being found guilty of four sex offenses as cult leaders do. Well trend for them. Patricia actually testified against him in trial. And following this, Patricia allegedly decided to leave the cult and take a trip to Yosemite National Park to clear her mind. Her roommate reported that the last time she saw Patricia, she was getting on the bus headed towards the park. But she was never seen again. On June 28, 2003, a severed arm and hand were found in the park. Five years later, a skull was discovered. No other body parts have been found. It took until April of 2021 to identify the remains with genetic genealogy as Patricia.
1: So, a hand and then the head.
0: We have an arm with hand attached and the skull, and that is it.
1: Wow, and that's it. Okay. Okay.
0: So, you may have already seen the connection with Patricia living in Merced and going to Yosemite, but there's another connection. Apparently, Carrie Stainer was a good friend with the cult leader Donald Gibson and attended his trial, thus, seeing Patricia's testimony. Many people believe Carrie chose to kill Patricia in retaliation, which may be true, but also he didn't need a reason. think he just liked to kill women. Mm. And there are actually two other women who were murdered in or near the park that also match Carrie's MO. In October of 1994, severed hands were found near the New Malone's reservoir. In December of that same year, a headless and handless torso was found in a tree in a park by young boys, which I'm sure is absolutely traumatizing.
1: Well, yeah. Wow.
0: That same month, a decomposed body was found in a 50-gallon burn barrel near the Don Pedro Reservoir, but this body was intact and obviously not matched with the other body parts found. The body in the barrel was identified as 34-year-old Denise Smith. The hands and torso were later identified as 24-year-old Sherilyn Mavone Murphy. Her head has also never been found. But the FBI has stated they are investigating Carrie's possible involvement due to similarities in the murder of Joey Armstrong.
1: So how did these women go missing? Did they just...
0: I don't know. I couldn't find much about, like, if they had been reported missing or...
1: Like missing at the park or, like, missing... Elsewhere, yeah. Yeah. There's,
0: like, not much out there, I guess, because they're still open. Right, okay. Okay. Which also might explain why we don't know much about like Joey's murder because they said that there's a connection to Sherilyn's with Joey's. So I guess yeah. that guy's keeping that all wrapped up. Makes sense. Okay. But I don't feel like the woman in the barrel really matches his MO. Like all the other bodies, he's just kind of placed out there and obviously cut up. Yeah. So I don't know about Denise. For one last or maybe two plot twists, there are two male victims that have been connected to Carrie. Okay, that's interesting. On August 10th, 1996, 20-year-old Michael Larry Madden left home to meet his friends at the Sandbar Flat Campground in Sonora, California. Sonora is just above Yosemite and about an hour and a half away northeast of Merced. When Michael's friends arrived at the predetermined meetup spot around 2 a.m., there was no sign of Michael. There was also no signs of his dog, Matilda. Michael's friends did notice that there appeared to be a freshly made fire at the campsite. Michael had been there with his dad several times and apparently was always one to build the fire, and he was pretty well acquainted with the area. Michael's friends thought it was odd, but decided to wait it out. Maybe he was still on his way and the fire was made by someone else or maybe maybe Michael went out for something. While they were waiting, a man named Joseph Tyne showed up at the site and started asking if they were looking for Mikey. Michael's friends thought this was odd because Michael never went by Mikey. What was even more odd is that they thought Joseph was wearing Michael's boots. But this mm. was never confirmed. Michael's friends waited at the site for over six hours for him. Joseph Tyne also oddly stayed with them and allegedly repeatedly cocked his pistol for funsies. I guess that's what you do before you have like a fidget spinner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, all the time fidget spinner. Eventually, the friends reported Michael missing, and a search ensued with no evidence. Four days later, luckily, the dog Matilda returned to the site dehydrated. Michael has never been located. Police did perform a polygraph test on Joseph time, but have not released the results of it. They also stated that Joseph's gun did not have any spent shells at the time Michael disappeared. So the case of Michael Madden's disappearance is still open and being investigated. And the sheriff's office investigating it stated they are looking into a possible connection with Carrie Stainer. But for me, at least this one, I'm leaning towards this Joseph guy yeah like why is he there
1: yeah i don't know i kind of tend to agree with that
0: and i feel like carrie kind of stalked his victims a little bit beforehand yeah like he seemed to have it planned out i don't know if he would just randomly check a 20 year old boy who just happened to be out there
1: but... yeah maybe not just like not his mo like it doesn't really seem i don't know
0: we do have one last victim who i do think carrie killed On December 26, 1990, a man was driving past his friend's house when he noticed that the front door was open. He stopped to investigate, thinking it was odd because the friend should have been at work as a truck dispatcher. The friend walked in and found that his friend was deceased from a single gunshot wound to the chest and called the police. Police arrived and identified the deceased as Jesse Stainer, the paternal uncle of Carrie Ann Stephen. Jesse had come home from work for his lunch break and drove his work truck home. The only things missing from the home was the truck and the murder weapon. Police also quickly deduced that there was no signs of a struggle or fight. It was as if the killer shot Jesse by surprise. For a while, there were no suspects and no persons of interest, and this was until Carrie's arrest. This was because not only was Carrie the nephew of Jesse, but Carrie was also living with him at the time of the murder. Another thing they found out was when Carrie had that, like, psych evaluation for the second trial, for the state trial, he opened up about being molested by Jesse when he was 11, which I don't know if we can say is true. I don't know, because this was while Stephen was currently kidnapped. Right. Oddly convenient to say that. Yeah, it does seem a little... Yeah, I don't know. But out of all the ones that are being investigated as possible murders committed by Carrie, I'm going to go out here and say he's probably involved with the murder of his uncle Jesse. What a sad little family story. Yeah, that is terrible. That is so sad. And we think we have family drama. Not there yet. And that was the story of the kidnapping of Stephen Stainer and the serial killer that is his brother, Carrie Stainer
1: that's crazy that was a twisty one i did not i didn't think that was going to keep coming like that
0: i didn't either i knew the story about stephen and i was like oh i'll do that one day and i'm started researching it and i was like oh, oh there's well, there's a brother
1: a there's
0: a lot to unpack here wow that is crazy
1: i can't believe stephen's kidnapper though got that lattice sentence. that just makes me so mad
0: when I get into overtime. Yes. You have some survivor stories of your own.
1: Yeah, I do. Last week we did not put out an episode because I was currently trapped in Colorado in this huge ice snowstorm, which we're putting, we'll put this episode out this coming Thursday, but it's January 21st, 2024 right now, in case you need to know. In case you you remember in the next coming years, you listen to this, you'll remember the big ice storm. I'm sure you will. But I was going on a, a family trip to Colorado just to ski, and we ended up having to stay two extra days longer than and spend a third day basically traveling to try to get home. They closed. We were staying in Breckenridge and Frisco. We were driving back coming through Breckenridge and what should have taken 20 minutes to get down the road took about three hours and we left we knew it was going to be bad so we left like seven hours before our plane (laughs) still couldn't make it we were like there's no way because it's like I don't know an hour and a half and it took us three hours to get 20 minutes down the road and then they started shutting off highways and so we ended up turning around waiting two days and then finally got out but It didn't interrupt our recording schedule, so.
0: For that, Holly is deeply sorry.
1: (laughs) Deeply, deeply sorry. Please, please forgive me, and (laughs) I'll try to control the weather next time, but you know what? I have heard of these recording, like, pop-up recording studios for podcasters, so you can, like, record anywhere on the go, and I almost thought that'd be so cool if I could find one close to me, but even if I did find one, I probably couldn't get to it. It would probably be in Denver or something like that, but those do exist and I think that's kind of cool
0: were you able to fly out of Denver or did you have to go somewhere else
1: I did end up flying out of Denver it was just two days late so
0: (sighs) wait Uh, wait we need to talk about who was on your flight
1: oh my gosh yes Big Ed was on my flight celebrity sighted yeah and if you don't know Big Ed 90 day fiance I won't be rude about his appearance but people he has uh, no neck yeah yep thank you Kylie None whatsoever. You probably would if you looked up a picture of him. Look up Big Ed. You'll know who it is. Apparently, I would. I texted a group of my friends. I sent them a picture of it, and they were like, "Oh yeah, like he lives in Northwest Arkansas now." What? Why? I don't know. And he's on the real estate board there. Oh my god! So Big Ed out there selling big houses. Oh, you got to run into Big Ed. I know. I have to. I mean, I already have one time. I'm sure that he. I'm sure I'll see him around. I. I actually saw not too long ago a group of people out on Dixon Street, which is kind of like the party party street of uh, Fayetteville. He was out on Dixon Street just like partying. Looking for a new There's wife? With him. Yeah, I guess so. Actually, I think he might be married. I think
0: Big Ed might be married now. We gotta look it up. I think you need to go start booking some little like house showings with Big Ed.
1: Oh, that's a good idea, Kylie.
0: I don't see any pictures of a wife on Instagram. Okay. Well, there's still hope. If only you weren't in a relationship, Polly.
1: Yep. Well, you know, Big Ed. I don't know, you know. I see Big Ed on the plane, which was a delightful surprise. Of course, I didn't say anything to him. I just got a picture, but it was very interesting.
0: I don't think I've ever seen a celebrity on a flight.
1: Actually, this was probably my first. I don't even think I've seen a celebrity at an airport. You know, I can't really say I've ever ran into a celebrity before just in the wild, you know?
0: I saw um, the human Kindle from Botched. Oh, that's
1: a good one to see.
0: At one of my birthday dinners in Atlanta. It was a good birthday gift.
1: Yeah, that's pretty cool. Kate's ran into, was it Serena Williams?
0: Oh, yeah. Like an arcade? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Isn't that right, Kate? No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. Kate's not here.
0: Apparently, she's listening now, though.
1: Yep, she's listening
0: to so us talk shit about her.
1: Yeah, we got mm-hmm. lots of stuff to say. So that was mm-hmm. my um, story, my traumatic traveling story. Nothing like that's ever happened to me, where I've been stranded somewhere. Really, well, I take that back. I got stranded in an airport for like one day, but that this was more, a little more traumatic, but then I went straight from there to a funeral in Kansas. So I like got into my car and drove. Well, my brother drove. I made my little brother drive me um, seven-ish hours to Kansas for a funeral and then back. So pretty much just got home. Well, I guess I was home yesterday, but yeah. So. What a week. Crazy week. week. I
0: think I told you this once. Or my dad got Stuck in a snowstorm in Denver and had to sleep on the airport floor for five days. So at least that wasn't you.
1: When you told me that, I don't even know if I replied to your text message because I looked at it and I was like, oh my gosh, I can't even imagine. Like that, don't even tell me that right now. I think I did tell my whole family. I was like, one time, Kylie's dad. And they were like, okay, that's terrible. Don't even tell us that.
0: But apparently, if all the workers are also stuck in there, it just turns into a big party
1: oh maybe that's fun like a little snow in like
0: yeah with strangers yeah
1: that's kind of fun did he make any friends
0: i think he did it's just like a giant sleepover
1: a giant that's so cute an adult sleepover nobody has to do anything i love that
0: gosh when's the last time you went to a sleepover Hmm. like not just like crashing at a friend's house but like we're having a girl's sleepover
1: I mean I guess if you subtract like bachelorette parties my friend Blair and I had a sleepover one time like well I say when, I mean you know within a few years but it's been a while gosh sleepovers were so pure and fun oh they were the best
0: I think like middle school and high school it was like every weekend we would just like rotate houses
1: I thought it was so fun like going to it was like such a thrill going to school after having a sleepover
0: oh yeah you had new secrets new inside jokes
1: yeah. and it's like your parents took the other the person to school and so you like got ready together you get to see what the other person was wearing to school and like show
0: up together and like I don't know oh I always love when I like on Fridays I was if I was going home with someone else from school and I'd have my little my uh fear Bradley duffel bag with me at school all day yeah I was like don't mind me like I'm going to sleep over
1: yeah Oh, did you ever like text your friends before school and be like, "What? Hey, what are you wearing?"
0: Oh yeah. Okay, I did too. Did you have like random days where you're like, "Okay, we're gonna wear, like we're gonna wear a dress, so we're gonna like curl our hair." Yes,
1: it was like one day you'd be like, "You want to dress up, but you don't want to be the only one to dress up because then it looks weird." So it's like, and and it's just like a, a mindset thing, you know. It's like walking in. And not knowing if everybody's wearing their Halloween costume. It's like you walk in and you're a little bit more dressed up than everybody. And it makes you so self-conscious. So if you have your friends dressed up with you, it makes you feel better.
0: For no reason. And you're constantly texting them in the morning of like, you promise you're dressed up.
1: Promise you're wearing a skirt? Promise. <laughs> you promise. I did you that won't. so much. Yeah. <sighs> I really did. Have you seen those TikToks that are like the girl that reenacts like college days and it within probably like 2016 to 2019 and it's like so what oh, are you yeah. wearing and it's like um leggings and a going out top or like shorts and <laughs> denim shorts and a going going out top or uh leggings and a what were those weird shirts pico peplum what is it the peplum top yeah yeah where it's like the skinny arms and it's like bigger yeah thing? yeah
0: Yeah, and I don't know if it's the same girl, but the one girl's like, "You're wearing a chunky necklace, right?"
1: Oh yeah, a statement, (laughs) a statement necklace. Yeah, a bubble necklace.
0: The business casual era of the clubs was an interesting time.
1: Yeah, that really was. I think that was around the bubble necklaces were around my probably mid high school for me were bubble necklaces. Oh my
0: gosh! By the time I got to college, they were kind of out. The chokers. chokers were in
1: yeah i remember the choker era.
0: let's see what else skinny jeans with over the knee the suede black boots
1: Mm -hmm. or if you were like me and you never had skinny like true skinny jeans it can be hard to find like good stuff in arkansas especially like where i lived i would have to go like a couple hours down the road to go shopping And so, if I didn't have skinny jeans, I just made myself skinny jeans. I would take it and I would wrap,
0: yeah, Yeah.
1: or I would like just wrap it around, wrap the end of the jean leg around itself until it was like tight on my leg, and then I would put a long sock over it because it didn't matter because I was putting those big old like long boots on top of it, and they looked like skinny jeans
0: still to this day. God, I had to do that in middle school because this was before skinny jeans, and tuck them into my UGG boots.
1: Yeah, why like was that? it popular before they were even
0: making them? Like, Fashion companies are just behind. Yeah, get with it. And with that, thanks for tuning in to another episode of Over My Dead Pod. If you want even more information, including photos of the case, you can check out our blog on overmydeadpod.com. Be sure to leave us a review wherever you're listening to this and check us out on social media at Over My Dead Pod. And we'll see you next week with another case. Bye.
1: Bye. And rumor has it that Kate's going to be on the next episode. So if you are a Kate Carter fan and haven't okay. been listening, <laughs> come back next week. Because <laughs> Kate will be back. Maybe. Fingers Allegedly. 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 Bye. <laughs>